Good afternoon, everybody. Here are some interesting questions. How will Vice President Kamala Harris fix the crisis that's now overwhelming the U.S. southern border? And uh, are the latest horrific shootings in Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado, finally the long-awaited opportunity for comprehensive gun control? And um, look at the U.S. Senate. <clears throat> will the filibuster be soon entombed as a relic in Madame Tussauds' wax museum? Uh, the, these questions and more we'll talk about on today's episode of Independent Outlook. Welcome again. I'm Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent uh, Institute here in Oakland, California. We're just a stone's throw from San Francisco. And our goal uh, is to give you some interesting commentary on the events of the day. And of course, as always, um, we are delighted to be in partnership with our friends at ThinkSpot.com. Thanks, friends, for making this possible. Thanks to everybody who's coming to us through the ThinkSpot uh, webpage channel. Also, we have lots of uh, our friends viewing this program through our Facebook page, through our YouTube channel, our Twitter feed. Uh, most importantly, however, I am delighted to be joined, as always, by my two colleagues. First of all, David Thoreau, founder and president of the Independent Institute. Welcome, David. Thank you, Graham. It's a pleasure, as always, to have you with us. And I see there's some interesting recently published books from the Independent Institute sitting on the shelf behind you. So hopefully later you'll have a chance to mention those. Also joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Williamson Evers, who is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Glad to see you. Boy, you've got a really full bookcase behind you. And who are those, those heads sitting on the top? They look famous and old. Well, they purport to be Socrates and Aristotle, but I think in truth, no one knows what they look like. Ah, okay, probably that's true. <laughs> that's probably true. But they are the traditional appearance right. accorded to those two. Right. Well, let's hope that we can follow Socrates' example and admit that we know what we don't, that we, we don't know certain things that, that we wish we did know, uh, but we know what we don't know, I hope. So from a position of partial ignorance, but partial knowledge, let's talk about some of these events of the day. Um, disturbing, obviously, the disturbing event uh, that uh, at King Super's Grocery in Boulder on Monday, uh, 10 people, including a police officer, were shot and killed uh, by a 21-year-old uh, young man named Ahmad Al-Aliwi Alisa, who's from Arveda, Colorado. Uh, he's been charged with 10 counts of murder. Um, <clears throat> Everybody wants to ask every time, why do these things happen? But then immediately the why question seems to get overwhelmed by we must have gun control. What's your take on this, uh, David? Well, it, it all goes back to this woke ideology uh, of race and gender and what have you, that those, those factors determine someone's understanding and worldview and the world can be divided into oppressors and oppressed based on those criteria. So uh, the major media jumped immediately uh, to claim that the deaths in Atlanta mm -hmm. were race-based against Asians, uh, Asian Americans. Uh, and it turns out that the perpetrator was motivated because of his uh, striking back at porn uh, had nothing to do with it whatsoever. In fact, the FBI and I believe the uh, local district attorney said there's zero evidence that that was a factor. He had visited the massage yeah. parlors right. and he was uh, 
motivated by his uh, hatred or dislike of prostitutes yeah. and his fear that they would be a temptation to him. Exactly. And so yeah. he was going to rid himself of temptation, right. not by resisting it, not by firmness of character right. and self-discipline, like discipline yourself, but by kid. killing them, yep. killing them. And then right. the, other, the other incident in Colorado, uh, the media jumped again to conclude it was a, 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 a white man, white supremacist, uh, who was killing innocent people. And it turns out it's a, it's a, it's a man from a Syrian background. Um, and it now turns out that he is a sympath, uh, sympathizer of ISIS. He was planning on going back to Syria, uh, but the COVID epidemic prevented him from doing so. Uh -huh. uh, he was also anti-Trump. So uh, many of these media people who tweeted on this have taken down their tweets, mm -hmm. but they stick to the story. <laughs> So um, it's very much like what Victor Davis Hanson and many others have been talking about as far as the uh, sort of perverse uh, and failing ideology of this wokeness view. Instead of holding people accountable for their acts, uh, you have this race-based narrative. I mean, another example of this that's also come out is, another perspective on it is, if you look at the data of who kills Asian Americans, uh, it's overwhelmingly blacks, percentage-wise. So this goes back to Shelby Steele's analysis of what wokeness, what progressive ideas and institutions have done to destroy the black community and black families. And this doesn't mean that anybody's hating anybody. Right. It may be that vulnerable Asians come into the sight of black criminals and they just as soon have white or other black victims, but they <laughs> happen to have uh, these people mm. uh, who are not well protected in this case, so they get to be hit by the criminal. Well, also the Asian American community is a diverse, very, di very diverse. Right, but it's also physically intertwined with blacks in many places. That's right, so. and so m most of the Asians are uh, very interested in, in uh, being small business entrepreneurs. They have retail stores. They're involved, including in, in black communities. That's right. Something to something yes. to be said right. for Koreans yep. and the revival of Oakland. That's right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And most major cities have uh, communities that are have been built by different Asian American groups. So um, the whole narrative is false, and it just foment it's it's a racist narrative, and yeah. it's not fair to, not fair to the victims, and it's not fair to the accused either. But I also think Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, is right to say that this is just another occasion for the controlling mentality of modern progressivism That's right. to seek another occasion to clamp down on the independence of citizens. Yeah and put them under the control and put them on more dependent upon the central government and by taking away their defense, their self-defense. Mm -hmm. I mean, people have a natural right to defend themselves. They should be able to use available technologies. Yeah. And this includes handguns and long guns and other things that you, know, you can use to defend yourself. And to say that somehow, <laughs> We, we don't really want even the police to be everywhere to take care of this. Yep. We, we want 
arm, we want armed law enforcement out there, but people also should be able to defend themselves and are better judges of what their needs are than some central bureaucracy that's trying to police a whole large geographical area. Yeah, the police are not our bodyguards, even if right. Pelosi and Schumer all have bodyguards. <laughs> yes. And legally, we can't hold them out for failing to be our bodyguards. That's right. They are, Im they are immune from suits. They can, you can have two people standing at a crosswalk. One's a policeman, the other's the guy who's about to get shot. A guy can come, another guy can come up, shoot him. Policeman does nothing. He's only wounded, so he sues the policeman. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not obligated. I'm, I think really the policeman would help him. But if he didn't, there would be no case. Under, under legal precedent, they are not obligated to defend any individual. Another aspect of this is, what, for example, what Schumer is proposing uh, and Biden is uh, to ban assault weapons, so-called assault weapons, mm -hmm. universal background checks. Uh, I haven't heard anything about the red flag confiscation law, but I suspect that's part of it. Banning of high capacity magazines and so on. And ironically enough, all these blue cities, including Boulder, where the shooting occurred, have all these laws already. Right. And uh, Cruz also pointed out none of these big proposals would have stopped no. these things from happening. Right. Because as David's pointing out, it's already on the books in these places. And, and, and the, the idea of the automatic high-powered high weapons, we used to have that ban. Famously, Senator Feinstein was associated with this. It lapsed. There was no real change of any sort associated with it. And yes, still a few killings went on, but not any more or less notably than while the ban was on. And then in addition, uh, and it's not just that Boulder has very strict gun control laws, which is exactly what Schumer's proposing and Biden. Yeah, yeah. But the state of California is ranked number 12 as being the most strict gun control state in the country. Right. And on top of it, where the shooting occurred is one of the King Caesars grocery stores. King Caesars King has a ban on carrying guns in the stores. So it's a gun-free zone. Oh, gun-free zones. Like they're like drug-free zones. <laughs> right. So I mean, the point here is that all the measures that are being proposed right. are exactly what exists. And we have this outcome, plus the fact that people cannot defend themselves, as Bill is saying. And if people can't defend themselves, guess what happens? Yeah. Then they are a target. Right. And a gun-free zone is like a, zo a zone that says armed uh, people with malicious intent, right. come here. Come right. here. Do your right. worst. Come get us. It's like, it's yeah, come get us, right? It's a magnet. You may remember years ago. Speaking of magnets, we seem to have one at the border right now. But anyway, David, David you were about to say on. something. I'll say one other thing. What, you may remember the Columbine shooting years ago in Colorado. Right. right. And uh, it turns out that the shooter, or shooters, I guess, uh, I'm, actually, I'm thinking of the, there was a shooting there, but I'm thinking of the shooting at the theater. There's oh, another yeah. shooting. Different one. Mm -hmm. Right. So it turns out the shooter literally passed many shopping centers and malls mm -hmm. that had private security guards and, and carry provisions that you could be armed. 
and went to one theater, and passed many theaters that had uh, bans on guns, and went to the one theater that didn't. That had a ban on guns. That had a ban on guns. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's like a magnet, like you were saying. He just didn't want to be interrupted. (laughs) That's right, yeah. And I mean, mean, Schumer and these others that are all protected, Biden is protected, right? Uh, And so on. Uh, Dianne Feinstein's protected, Michael Bloomberg is protected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, if you ask them, well, why don't we just not have your security detail with you? You know, they wouldn't go even go outside. And they'll say, well, I'm a public figure. But the point is that the police are not going to be your bodyguards to protect you if you're in danger. So the average person um, who is told that you can't protect yourself is a sitting duck for nuts. Essentially, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want a society with that many policemen. No, no, that would be right. really bad. Exactly, right. that would be right. terrible. So, like one policeman for every non-policeman, that seems like half the population exactly. would be policemen. Be scary. That's, That's a lot. Precisely. Well, John Lott, the uh, the famous criminal uh, economist who focuses on this issue uh, in his book "More Guns, Less Crime," has shown uh, that uh, those counties and those states that restrict the ability to have a gun, have higher crime rates. And he's shown that if you change the law in a particular county or state up or down as far as restrictions, the crime rates follow exactly according wow. to that. He shows and that this statistically? Is, this is such a powerful empirical stu- study, and he's been updating it for decades. Wow. That's fascinating. Uh, the view that more guns, less crime is not true simply doesn't hold up to the data. But yesterday, President Biden called on the Senate to immediately pass the two House-passed bills that would tighten the screws on gun ownership even further. So I think, you know, they have to get to 60 for this, right? It's not a budget matter. It's not a, you know, treasury matter. And so uh, there's not 60 votes for this in the Senate, I don't think. I think think that's right. You know, they, they could get Collins and Murkowski, maybe, maybe not Murkowski, Maybe not Collins. They both have large rural populations. But whatever it is, they're not going to get to 60. Hey, here's we're going to come back to that filibuster thing in a minute. But we're getting some great questions from some of our friends on ThinkSpot who are watching, participating with us here. Uh, one person with us just sent me this question here. He, uh, a person said, people cite Australia's gun control reform as a piece of evidence in the argument for buyback programs and other measures meant to reduce gun violence. Is this a legitimate case we could potentially emulate? Interesting question. Do you guys know the answer? It falls into the same category. If you, if you reduce the ability of people to defend themselves, guess what? They're not going to be defended. Right. And that's it. It's also better to see Australia as a gun confiscation program. So buybacks can mean many things. Uh, they can be kind of a soft confiscation. And uh, we don't want any kind of confiscation, soft or hard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if people want, if some philanthropist or some community group wants to have a buyback program and offer to pay people for turning in guns and ammunition, whatever, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't do it. If you do it, if you do it, take your money and use it to pay for a security service. Right. And, and uh, you know, having uh, people who have uh, expertise in a neighborhood or a town is, is ideal. Uh, That's much better. Right. right. But the idea that it should be mandatory 
uh, is grossly mistaken. And one of the things is, as, as long as we're advocating self-protection, if you have your own gun, practice. Yes. Because a gun that doesn't shoot the malefactor is not a useful gun. You so know what you're doing. Keep your practice up. It, the, the COVID is winding down here. Mm -hmm. So get in there and practice. And also keep, it's like any tool, you know, keep right. it in good shape. And keep it stored right. where you can use it, but also where children will Where it'd touch. be safe. That's right. Exactly. I did appreciate the comment that uh, Kamala, Vice President Kamala Harris made yesterday, apparently uh, commenting on the shootings in Colorado. She's absolutely tragic. She especially con uh, commended a police officer who is performing his duties and with great courage and heroism. I mean, yes, <clears throat> that needs to be said, That's right. especially in the era of defund the police. We need to recognize yeah. police officers who have great courage and heroism sure. and give yeah. their lives up. We should. That's right. So speaking of Kamala Harris, I thought it was pretty funny that the White House has just kicked out a bunch of staffers who use marijuana. Mm -hmm. But there she is bragging in television advertisements that, yes, or not tele in television interviews, yes, I use marijuana, yes, I inhaled. How is she passing her security clearances? I don't know. That's confusing to me. I think it's a very bizarre situation. Yep. I mean, here Former is, President Clinton did not inhale, right? Well, whatever. Well, that's what he said. That's what he said. <laughs> I just think, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously, these politicians are caught in a terrible trap. They have, you know, millions of people who have used benign amounts of these drugs, which, you know, we're not counseling anybody to use mind-altering drugs that impair them, including right. too much alcohol. Please but, avoid. Know, just, yeah, and so here are all these people, and they have to draw from people to staff the administration. And yet, you know, here's Kamala Harris, who put people in jail for long periods of time as a prosecutor in California, who was a drug user herself. Right. I mean, she forgot to put herself in jail. Right, but you have to remember that Kamala Harris is uh, an opportunist. Above the right. law. And she is, the one thing that she is, she thinks she's good at is theater. So she'll um, laugh and cackle and, and make up stories uh, if she thinks right. that it's in her interest to do so. It's possible that that laugh is emblematic of some practices of her and others. Hey, you remember during the uh, primary campaign, this last cycle, uh, earlier on before she dropped out, um, she commented that when you have a background from Jamaica, it's not surprising that you use marijuana. And then her own father, as I recall, spoke her out publicly. Her own father thought, oh, I don't need this ganja daughter right, it was, bragging about misbehaving. When it was calumny against Jamaicans, according to him. Well, there is drug use in Jamaica. Well, yeah. It's not a fault, right? The other aspect that's come out is where she has been talked about as an African-American. Now she's an Asian-American. Well, it's great. I guess you can do both. She's, every, she's everything. It's basically what will get your way. Uh, even, though, even though being Asian-American or African-American or whatever, you know, getting back to Martin Luther King is not the measure of the person. Right. The goal is the content of your character, right. and that should be the measure. Exactly. So it's interesting that all these progressive politicians who have been mistreating 
Asians by not recognizing Asian mm -hmm. school achievement, right. Asian children working hard and succeeding in schools and taking away schools that are high powered and that allow those kids to flourish. And they're, you know, just imposing quotas on them to get into college and all sorts of things. This is progressive everyday activity. Now, oh, suddenly we're, you know, uh, the defenders of Asians. You who have been trample, trampling on them, thanks a lot, but no thanks. Well, it is a fact that the, uh, the incidence of uh, violent crimes against Asians is uh, actually quite low, even the increases we're talking about an increase of five people nationally in a year or something, yeah. except except in progressive institutions. So progressive institutions discriminate against Asians en masse. You know, Harvard right. being the most being the most notorious example, and uh, uh, they actually got the case thrown out, uh, which is a sad reflection, even the case was overwhelmingly showed that Harvard's policies were discriminating directly against Asian American students. So we were talking about how no gun zones are a magnet. And I was trying to segue into the magnet at the border. <laughs> and I think it'd be an excellent time to make my segue. <laughs> well, yeah, especially since President Biden has just appointed Kamala Harris as yeah. the border czar. Exactly. She should just definitely be able to fix this. Okay, so I've just got a great comment from one of our participants uh, who says, how do you think Harris's tenure as border czar will unfold? Is she merely there to provide cover, or is the administration going to have to make serious immigration concessions to open border left types in the media to save face? That's a question from one of our participants via ThinkSpot. Look, I think, I think honestly speaking, they put Harris in there, one, because, you know, she's a high-profile person, and since she's a multiracial background, uh, it's going to be tougher for people to, to attack her because she can play some kind of race card against mm -hmm. her critics. Mm -hmm. The fact is, they're going to have to do something, either like what Ob uh, Obama did, the Obama-Biden administration, uh, and deport a lot of people and so forth because they can't manage this flow. Or they're going to have to do something like what Trump did, and they'll probably do some mixture of these, but they'll clothe it in much more wonderful rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I understand the cages are now made out of lucite instead of metal. <laughs> it's just... Uh, oh, I feel good about that. Yeah. Well, the other, the other thing to consider is... Uh, whether Harris is being put in that position to uh, distract the growing animosity against Biden. It could be. They put out instructions today that from now on, all administration materials are supposed to refer to the Biden-Harris administration yes. and not the Biden administration. Right. Oh. So it could be that she's given this high-profile job uh, to be part of that, possibly, you know, she, of course, wants to be president eventually, uh, and partly because, you know, they have to divide up some tasks, and Biden is not capable of doing everything, and so Cheney did a lot of work for, for uh, President George W. Bush, uh, you know, you're going to see some of that here.
And I think that, you know, getting back to what you were saying, Bill, about uh, her inter intersectionality, meaning right. that she can take the heat more because of the woke ideology. Exactly. And Biden can't because he's a white male. Uh, but I think the part of the point is that if Harris can't deflect it, then certainly Biden couldn't deflect it. Yeah, and it's better right. have her take the heat than him. I think, though, we, we should consider some reforms that uh, Independent Institute has uh, discussed in the past about treating uh, admission to the country as a kind of a, a voucher right. kind of thing that uh, somebody could come in because they put down some funds mm. or they show they have a job or various things that would uh, encourage productive individuals coming into the United States and discourage any perception of immigration as just something that's responding to a welfare magnet. Mm -hmm. Milton Friedman once said that it's really not a large welfare state, a beneficent welfare state, a munificent welfare state is not really compatible with very lax immigration. And so, you know, the three of us, we would all say, yeah, so cut down the welfare state. Right. And the Biden people are <laughs> taking the opposite view. Yes. Expand the welfare state and expand the laxness, the looseness of the the borders. And so, you know, they're they're cruising for a crash. That's right. And there are other economists who've also embraced the voucher. Uh, Milton did. Uh, Richard Vedder, our senior fellow. Uh, I believe it James Buchanan, Gary Becker. There are just a whole number of economists who embrace this idea. You, you should sketch it out a little more. Yeah. But I think it, it's it's a sound view. It'd be far less expensive. It'd make people accountable. Uh, and uh, you wouldn't have this tragedy of the commons uh, with these coyotes and cartels raping girls and women and abusing children and parents selling their children to the cartel. I mean, just it's it's mind boggling what's happening. It's not very nice for these children. No. It's not really good for family integrity. No. It's it's just not it's not good. And 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 you know, at the same time, they're not making a serious effort to control the border so right. that people come in in a regular way. I thought it was intriguing yesterday on, on CNN.com, they published a piece on this so-called border crisis. And one of the lines in it, this is CNN, is, is the border open? Not quite. Right. Well, <laughs> the really interesting story was in the Washington Post a few days ago, mm -hmm. where the transition for Biden-Harris were told by the civil servants, by the regular professionals that handle immigration and border control and customs and so forth. They said, look, if you do these things that you've proposed during your campaign, you're going to have huge numbers like nothing we've ever seen before. Yeah, right. So be prepared. Right. And what did they do? Nothing. They were heedless about it. And you, I, I think the part about the unaccompanied children is, of course, the part that grabs everybody's hearts, my own included. But when you look at what's really happening here, I would say this is an instance of a policy of pernicious compassion. It's rooted in compassion. Of course we can't turn back. Of course we have to accept every unaccompanied child. But when you take that as a policy of the state, then you create an incentive to mistreat children. 
And that, incent- that incentive is culpable and pernicious, although yes. it's justified in the name of compassion. Right. It's possible, and I'm not saying this is true, but some devilish minds might think that young children coming into the United States without their parents to help them, without mm. a family unit, and becoming wards of the state are more likely to be lifetime wards of the state or to be lifetime grateful to the state and to vote for politicians and policies that encourage a large state, a large government. And so, you know, I, I tend to agree with Graham that probably most of these policymakers are doing this on grounds of an ill-conceived compassion but it's possible that some of them have Machiavellian motives. Wow, too. what a thought. Well, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think going back to people like Tom Solon and, and uh, Shelby Steele and so on, who discuss- who've discussed how using the progressive array of social welfare programs and freebies and so forth to buy people to, and to make them loyal uh, is is a, not an insignificant part of this. Uh, to give you an idea of the numbers, Gallup uh, did a study, and they found um, out of in 33 countries, 42 million people want to leave those countries, and 27% of them want to come to the U.S. So that's mm. 120 million people. So. Do we have 120 million people on the welfare state? Yeah, great. So the Harris poll, Harvard Harris, I don't know. It's got no like relation to Kamala. <laughs> no, this is the, this is the older Thank days, you, Harris. Yes. Uh, they did a poll. And the, the two policies of the Biden administration that are most disliked, so like at the 70% dislike level, one is this policy of uh, reducing the uh, border control. And the second is uh, having biological males compete against girls in school sports. Mm-hmm. So those are the two most serious errors as far as the public is concerned that Biden has made. Yes. And, you know, the, the boys wrecking girls' sports, it's, it's there. It will you know, keep being a sore spot. But this immigration thing is, they won't let any journalist go in and see the conditions of these people right. where the capacity is five times what it was designed for. Far more than and five times. So, all right, David, I'm sure you're right. But I'm just saying it's horrendous how packed in they must have them. It'll make, you know, we used to hear about prison ships or, you know, slaves being thrown into the hold of ships or cattle cars going to prison camps in Europe during World War II, all this sort of thing. It's going to be crowded like that. Literally, in some of these detention centers, the children have to sleep on their side so they can squeeze them all in the room. Oh, my goodness. What, what if, however... Um, there's a Nixon to China possibility here. That is to say, if the Biden and Harris administration recognize that it really, open borders turn out not to be sustainable after all, 
and that some kind of limits are necessary, could it be that we might be able to get a reduction in immigration, a control and lawful law, law-controlled immigration through efforts by someone like Kamala Harris, the way that Nixon was able to, you know, make uh, a detente with China more than anyone on the left could have done. I don't think so. I, I mean, I think they're going to do it because they're going to have to do it. As I said, they're going to have to use some of the kinds of things that Biden and Trump, yeah, that, that right. Obama and Trump did. But they're not going to be given a free pass. So here was Nixon. You know, he built his whole career on being an anti-communist. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, if, if he was going to say, okay, this is something where we can have a, mo- have a modus vivendi. And I'm not saying, you know, we, we all kind of forget there were critics at the time, but it, there weren't many. So Harris is not some trusted, it's not like Bernie Sanders goes to China. True, true. That's a good point. You know, because Harris is considered kind of a, political weather vane by progressives. I mean, here she was a tough prosecutor. Yeah, she wasn't their first choice. And so forth. No, she was not. She's not Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, who once was a libertarian before she decided that wasn't going to get her anywhere. So, uh, you know, I don't think she's going to be given a free pass. And Biden has never had the confidence of the left. So, right. I mean, if Harris was smart, she would do something and that yeah, would save the day. She'd be a hero. She'd be a hero. And she might make herself more presidentially viable. Right. But she's not going to do it because she's too weak and yeah. opportunistic. Neither of these people are people that are thought of as having a strong spine. Mm-hmm. Right. If she came out as favoring legal-only immigration, it would be her sister-soldier moment. Yeah, but it wouldn't. Ha- I, I agree with Bill. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen, but... I don't think it's going to happen. They've gone too far. They've gone too far. And uh, the, the, only, the only thing that could allow for cover for this would be if the AFL-CIO and the Teamsters and the farm workers and the teachers unions all simultaneously came out for that. Right. Legal only. All right. Then she could do it. And, and of course, in the past, the labor unions have been restrictive. Oh, they so were greatly. It's not, it's not, with, this is within our recent memory, yeah. the three of us. Mm-hmm. So they could do that. They're not, right now, they're not partly because they often have a large Latino membership. Uh, but I just think uh, that would give her enough cover to do Interesting. It. Well, anything along these lines is going to have to go through Congress, they can't do this kind of immigration reform through uh, reconciliation. And then that brings us back to where we were a little bit ago. You got to get those 60 votes because for everything except for Supreme Court nominees, all major legislation has to be, uh, it has to overcome a filibuster with 60 votes. Well, they can do a certain amount of this. They can, they, if they do want to use Obama, Trump type restrictions, they can use executive stuff for that. But as far as going to what we've all been talking, different things we've been talking about here, the voucher idea, the legal only idea and so forth, then they would probably have to use statutes for that. There's another factor that might play into it, which is that um, Hispanic communities, uh, especially in border areas, are increasingly against open immigration. And of course, the farm the farm workers have also yep. a history of being right. restrictionist. Chavez himself right. is restrictivist. But the thing the thing is, we at Independent Institute 
favor legal immigration. Uh, we favor productive, hardworking people coming to the United States, mm -hmm. adding their entrepreneurial talents. And their intact families. We favor intact families. We favor uh, the rule of law. We, we don't favor a swamped welfare state. And so we are very interested in positive ideas in this area. And we don't think the Biden administration has shown them yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Now back to the filibuster then. I mean, sure. yesterday, uh, Ben Sass of Nebraska uh, took to the floor of the Senate and made a big speech uh, against the Democrats' attempt to eliminate uh, the filibuster, eliminate that threshold. Uh, he pointed out uh, that uh, many of the Democrats who are now trying to get rid, get rid of it they, they, they called at one time, they're calling a filibuster now a relic of the Jim Crow era and a tool of racist oppression, which is sort of the go-to argument for uh, left Democrats on any subject, no matter what it is. And then he, he proved how, how in tune they were with Jim Crow methods. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It was quite a speech. I <laughs> this mean, is the party of Jim Crow saying this. It is the party yeah. of Jim Crow, yeah. And he pointed out that the, Republic, that the, the Democrats gladly used uh, the filibuster during the Trump administration to block the Republican right. agenda. And uh, yes, he says just last year, Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, who was a, who's now one of the foremost critics of the filibuster, uh, she previously joined uh, dozens of Democrats to block police reform legislation using the filibuster. So what's going to happen with the filibuster? Will it last? Is it worth keeping? Um, somebody, you know, a man on the street type of thought might say, well, we should... The majority should get what it wants. Isn't this a democracy? And 60 is more than a majority. So isn't the filibuster anti-democratic? Uh, how do we answer those questions? Well, majority rule is not a republic. It's not a free society. The Athenians learned that the hard way. Uh, in Athens, if you wanted to take a position on something and people wanted to have a vote, they could do that within a very short time and you could be kicked out of the city. You could you could kill Socrates. You could still kill Socrates. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Whose bust is behind you on the shelf? That's right. That's Socrates over my head there. So one of the uh, insights that the founders, America's founders, who uh, wrote the Constitution and so forth and debated it, were mindful of was having an electoral college so that you wouldn't have this disproportionate ruling, not just by majority, but by cities over rural areas and and so on and so forth, and. So we have powerful states, yep. and and we put in a thing that is a design of competitive federalism, where different states can be doing different yep. things, and we don't have the federal government doing everything, and we have three different branches of government. Mm -hmm. They're somewhat interconnected and somewhat interdependent, but they also stand on their own. We have uh, a Senate that is supposed to take longer and be more difficult to get through than the House. Mm -hmm. uh, that has somewhat changed over the t over time. Um, you know, it used to be that the Senate was elected by state legislators. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be a bad idea to go back to. But anyway, we're not there right now. But it's still supposed to be something where state-level interests can give a second hearing to what the House is proposing and possibly say no or initiate mm -hmm. policies of their own that the House wouldn't really consider. And, and this blind devotion uh, to centralized power 
you name the issue. We should centralize it. We should expand the centralized power. Mm -hmm. It's a reflex. It's a, re it's a reflex. It's a default. And it's just, it's a folly. It, it's a seduction. And, uh, and, the, and they view that if they're in power. Right. But they don't, they don't really want democracy in the sense right. of government by plebiscite or opinion poll. They, they don't really want that. They want, they want the rule of experts yeah. ratified by the public. They want to have a rhetorical presidency or rhetorical governorship where the, the leader invokes the people. Yes. The leader panders to the people, mm -hmm. but the leader does what he and his expert counselors think they should have. And then he tries to convince them that that's what they want. That's right. Now, I mean, you know, to some extent, all political systems have a certain amount of this, but these people take it to an extreme. And uh, it's not, it's not, you know, the public believes a lot of things that are not true. I hate to say this to our audience, <laughs> but astrology is not true, okay? Mm -hmm. And yet, a, a sizable number of people believe it is true. And America <laughs> is not a democracy. Uh, That's America right. is a complicated republic uh, where we'd see- It's a complex, as, as has been described by political science, it's called a complex republic. Right, and, and the view that a lot of progressives have, that uh, we the people means me the people, yeah. And uh, uh, we see that in how the COVID-19 was treated by Anthony uh, Fauci and others. Uh, we see it in the climate issue. We see it in housing and homelessness. We see it on the border. Uh, the move to increase, radically increase taxes, to ha increase debt by mega, who knows how many trillions they're going to try to push for. The Green New Deal. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an endless list because the, the ideology behind it gives these people uh, credence that they are noble and mm -hmm. they should, they're chosen. They should, they should be deferred they're to. They're chosen. To, so our counter view is that all people have natural rights right. that belong to them by their nature as human mm -hmm. beings. And that people either banding together in voluntary groups or through businesses in the marketplace are going to find solutions to things, that uh, where we turn to government, we want a constitutional republic with checks and balances, a lot of protections for individuals and minorities, and we want to be very careful with force being used somehow against the innocent or to bully people, and people can solve social problems. They have lots of ingenuity, and they can sometimes just get the joy of giving and charity from it, and sometimes they can make a profit at it, and either way is fine right. with us. That's right, yeah. Well, now regarding the filibuster, the big prize here is this bill passed by the House, H.R. 1, which would fundamentally change elections, yeah. uh, centralize the control of them uh, in Washington, D.C., and to get that through the Senate is going to be a tough right. nut. But to get maybe 51 votes, maybe they could do it. So the filibuster stands in the way of probably yeah. the most dramatic new initiative to change electoral uh, systems in the U.S. ever in our history. So I don't think they're going to get rid of the filibuster successfully. 
there'll be a lot of jumping up and down about it, but I don't see that. And I think actually for them to push for it as a mistake, because when they lose it, they're going to be part of losing momentum over various right. things. Uh, I think what we're going to see is they're going to try to peel off the most. Now, right now, they tried to bundle everything in HR1. Right. The hope mm-hmm. that the popular things will help carry the less plausible things. I think they'll start unbundling it and trying to get pieces of it through. And I, I don't I don't see how HR1 in its present condition gets 60 votes either. Um, the only other thing, <laughs> I just, I, I don't, I, mean, I was thinking, well, maybe they could try and, just as they've gotten rid of the filibuster for a few things, they might pick one more few thing, like voting rights or something like that or public health measures or something like that and say, let's just get rid of the filibuster for that. And then they'll try and pass bills that where they portmanteau everything into that, that topic. Uh, you know, it's like putting welfare measures into the defense budget or something like that. So politicians have a lot of peculiar ideas to get their way. And so I'm sure we're going to see some of those, but I, I, I it would be a shame to have the Senate no longer, you know, this cuts against us, the three of us. We have ideas, the three of us, that Mm -hmm. would have a tough time getting through the Senate. Indeed, that's right. And, uh, you know, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight to convince public opinion that we're right. And uh, it's not going to be stable and it's not going to stick if, People are not convinced that this is the pathway to go. Right. It's healthy to have to reach a higher threshold of consensus. It is There's healthy. something about that. Just as a procedure, it's respectful. It, it limits rash uh, policymaking. Oh, the other thing is you have federalism. And in smaller units that want to do these things, mm-hmm. you do them. Give it a try. And you know, it's if, if you're trying to do something at the national level, you better have overwhelming consensus for it. Otherwise, you shouldn't be doing it. Exactly. The difference, Bill, about what we're looking for is instead of centralizing power, like HR one, the so-called For the People Act, which I right. That's that's always a good good signal to look look closely if they're saying something like that. Right. So it's really for the Swamp Act, and it reminds me of I forget the exact quote from H. L. Mencken is, uh, yeah, they'll they'll get it good and hard. Uh, the, the average person. Right. Um, but right. the difference in the proposals that we're making is to open up choices and opportunities for people, not to constrain them or ban them. And, I agree. and make people dependent but, and unable to make their own way forward and uplift their lives and the ones that they uh, can help. Nonetheless, we all agree that not everybody is at the same place we yes, are right that's now. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're, it's going to take some convincing. Yeah. And that's why yeah. we exist as an institute. And that's why we need your supporters, you listeners to this, to help us uh, carry the word of these ideas into the general public. And we we advise some legislators and policymakers, too. So all all three of us do. So one of the people who has been against H.R. 1 uh, is is also the the same person who's been outspoken against eliminating the filibuster, who is uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And right. for H.R. 1, uh, he said that uh, he told reporters on Wednesday that a voting rights bill should be limited to voting rights and not in so many areas. Um, you know, he's 
He's no dummy. Um, he's not. So he's doing this unbundling that I was he's, talking he's, about. He's talking about the unbundling. That's right. Yep. Well, I agree. And speaking of various senators, I noticed a major diatribe against Ron Johnson the other mm -hmm. day. Apparently, uh, he, for various things like questioning some of the experts on COVID-19 and saying maybe there were some voting irregularities uh, in the last diatribe by election. whom? Uh, I think it was the New York Times, but it might it might have been someplace else. Anyway, I, one of the major papers yeah. that I read uh, just took after him as a conspiracy crazy yeah. and tried to tag him with QAnon and a bunch of other stuff, which is really unfair. I don't think he's a carrier of those particular views. Right. He's He's a thoroughgoing conservative. I don't think, you know, he even has some libertarian tendencies, depending on the issue. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was it was very unfair. It was just like a smear, I think, is the best way to Well, put another it. person who was smeared just recently was Tim Scott. Right. So Tim Scott uh, had an article uh, and was attacking woke supremacy, as he put mm -hmm. it, and he was equating it to white supremacy. Okay. And so he was attacked by three different columnists of the Washington Post and commentators on, on MSNBC, and he stuck to his guns. He stuck to his guns. And he said, um, uh, my allergy does not match that which they prescribe based on my complexion. Right. That is woke supremacy. It is the tolerant left's intolerance for dissent. It's a progressive conception of diversity that does not include diversity of thought. It is discrimination right. falsely marketed as inclusion. And he, he's exactly right. And so yeah, he was good for Tim attacked. Scott. But uh, like, like. So this is, this is a, a, a common thing that we see. So in the olden days, when Colin Powell was viewed as a conservative, uh, or when Condi Rice was viewed as some sort of dangerous conservative, uh, they were black and they were Republican mm -hmm. and they were, you know, the objects of terrible, terrible attacks uh, that seem ludicrous in retrospect, uh, you know, and we all remember Clarence Thomas's the attacks on him. Uh, well, those of so us who are old enough. It's very discomforting. It's very discomforting to progressives for blacks to have uh, sound economic views, sound constitutional views, views that are not you know, lip-syncing progressive right. uh, talking points. And interestingly, in the piece that Senator Scott uh, published in the Washington Post, he also commented, in addition to what uh, you said a moment ago, David, I believe he commented about how uh, the woke ideology is can, will lead America to greater separation and segregation and yeah. division. That's right. Uh, very concerning. And he pointed out these specialized race-based graduation ceremonies yes. at, at Columbia University as an example exactly. of this and It's not just Columbia. It's everywhere. Yeah, I right. can promise you, mm -hmm. and I promise you that UC Berkeley and Stanford and San Francisco State uh, and, and Hayward mm -hmm. State, whatever they're calling it these days, uh, they all have the same thing. Now, it may be more extreme at Columbia, mm -hmm. but, you know, even... Even back in the 1970s, they had the separate black graduation at Stanford. You know, it's not, I mean, the blacks can and can at Columbia participate in the main graduation, right. 
but they have their own. Yeah, I mean, the, the point, to, to, to be fair to Colombia and others, um, the point is these are add-on optional things. They are. But, they are. but when the university condones and arranges for these race-segregated optional add-on events, they are telling students and the world that it is good to be race-segregated, that it's healthy mm -hmm. and to be affirmed. I think I'm going to be nice to them and say, that's okay, but I don't really like these race-based dormitories. Mm -hmm. Okay? That seems pretty off -putting. We've come a long way, you know, from... Um, oh, no, they... they I can promise you that these universities, all these top universities that we're talking about, and the, the lesser ones that follow, mm -hmm. you know, the lead. <laughs> kind of the leader, yeah, right? That's right. They all have race-based dormitories yep. now. Now, it's not there's no white in the dormitory, but it's, you know, whatever, two-thirds or two-thirds black or something. But like I do that. think that, again, what we're seeing is more and more people seeing the absurdity of it. Yeah. Uh, and another sort of facet of this is, and we've talked about this before, is the recent court decision in San Francisco um, by Judge Ethan Shulman against the San Francisco School oh, Board's yeah. edict right. they're going to rename all these schools. And interestingly right. enough, the, uh, the attorney against it was Lawrence Tribe from Harvard. And, and he was very clear and articulate to say that there is no standing for this whatsoever. Uh, Tribe is from San Francisco. No, no. He, said, he went to Lincoln he High said School. There, he said there was standing for the plaintiffs yes. who were suing the school That's what district. I'm saying. Yes, there's no standing for the edict. Well, that, that's a different meaning of yeah, standing. Yeah, standing. Right. Anyway, the point is that Tribe uh, convinced the judge. He weighed in very strongly. Very strongly that they had not followed due right. process in doing this. And also, that he, as a, a proud alumnus of Lincoln High right. School, uh, <laughs> you know, didn't think he and the alumni had gotten any kind of fair hearing uh, on this. Right. And did they really want to do this? And, you know, Tribe says, why are you doing this to the great emancipator? Exactly. <laughs> and, and so th there was a huge public uproar about this. For those of our listeners who don't realize this, Lawrence Tribe is a very left of center yes. legal right. scholar, although a very outstanding legal yeah. scholar. We, we here can recognize that uh, some scholars are great scholars, even if their politics are wrong. So Mac Maxim Rodinson is a great Middle Eastern scholar, even though he's a Marxist. E Edward Said is a crappy Middle East scholar, and he's also a leftist. Uh, Eugene Genovese used to be a Marxist yeah. and even a communist and was a great scholar of the American South and slavery. He later evolved into being a conservative, but he, the whole time he was still a great scholar. And the same was true of his wife. And, yes. But also the... the uh, uh, Similar progression. Yeah, so it, uh, a reflection on tribes' integrity, by the way is we, we did yeah. a book years ago called The Founder's Second Amendment by one of our senior fellows, Stephen right. Haldrick, on the actual documents of the founders when they, read the second, when they <clears throat> wrote the Second Amendment. What was their intent? So Steve went through all the court records and newspaper accounts and, and, newspaper, and law letters and everything and wrote this book, which won a number of awards. And at that, up until that point, uh, tribe had the leading textbook 
that was being used in law schools that basically only mentioned the Second Amendment in a footnote as being a mistake, essentially. Mm -hmm. He then revised his textbook to commend and point out that Steve had broken new ground to say that, yes, the founders did mean this to be the right to bear arms, right. and it's no trivial thing. He didn't agree with it, but he had the integrity. No, he, kind of, he agreed that that's what the founders yes, meant. That's right. He, if he had been a founder, he might not have no, been. No, what I'm saying, he didn't agree. He didn't agree at, yeah. in having it as one of the Bill of Rights, but he agreed that Steve was right, that, and he, he revised the textbook accordingly. Yeah, good for him. And he wrote a long article in the, in the New Republic at the time, yeah. also, yes. on this exact exactly. What yeah. we Very important what article. What we need is for America to be more humanized, not more racialized. And that's what I'm worried about, all these things. We, I'll go for people that. People are looking at one another through the wrong lens. Well, it's, it's interesting. When you look at... So... We had a conversation during Black History Month about this with uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Bean. And one of the things that's interesting is a lot of the leading black intellectuals that opposed progressive thought and uh, favored abolition and favored black rights and so forth, but were conservatives or libertarians, they didn't take this race pride thing and turn it into an ideology. Now, you can be a classical liberal, you can be a libertarian, you can be a conservative, and you could have uh, some kind of race pride view. I would say maybe Ishmael Reed falls into this a little bit. There's various kinds of people that might. But the point is, many of these critics thought this is just an excuse for not doing the work that you need to do or your family needs to do and to you know, put it all into a race pride thing or black nationalism or something like that. So it's compatible, but unusual to be, say, a black nationalist and a libertarian. You could be that as long as you're not imposing right. it on it other people. Do, but, right. but, but historically, most people who have been conservatives or libertarians and have uh, African-American background, they tend to be critics of people with overweening black pride or overweening uh, black nationalism. Well, take, go back to Shelby Steele for a moment, or Tom yeah. Sowell. They were both Marxists. Exactly. And they, yeah. you know, Shelby was very active in the uh, black nationalist movement in college and elsewhere. Um, but you have, to, you have to deal with a, a contradiction. Either you believe that individual... Clarence Thomas. That's right. That's right. You, either you believe that yourself and other blacks have individual agency and are do right. have dignity or they're right. just part of a collective. Yeah. So white nationalists believe that blacks are part of a collective and have no human agency and decency. So either right. you, you've got to take it one way or the other ultimately, and that's what that's why fundamentally right. But you could say that blacks have suffered yes. some right. oh, yeah. on a collective yes. basis where they weren't singled out as individuals, they were singled out as a group, and you could and you could say, and you know, I want to fight back against that. Right. So, it's not taken proportionally and and sensibly. It's not wrong. I mean, you know, if you were an American Indian and you felt that you had treaty rights of some sort that were taken away from you later. You could say, hey, I want the treaty back restored. You know, this was a deal. Why, what's what happening here? 
So these things are complicated, but I think, I think we're basically right to say we want individual rights. We don't want repression and suffering of the innocent to spoiling people of their property. And, you know, if they took it on a group basis, if they said, you have Japanese ancestry, go to this concentration camp. We, you know, that, that was an injustice. Yeah, it was horrid. done. And so we, we recognize that, but we think if individual rights were upheld, these sort of collective repressions would not go on. Community comes out of individual agency. Exactly. And so exactly. having pride in the history of black music and literature or whatever, or Chinese or you name it, is perfectly right. appropriate and good. But I'm, I'm simply saying that the, the tendency of progressives uh, and nationalists of you know, different ethnic views who deny individual agency is right. to foment racism. Yeah, it is. So uh, another thing that you know, just comes up under one of my, my scholarly interests, of course, is education and education reform. And we've just gone through ethnic studies controversy here in California. And one of the one of the interesting questions is: Can you know they, they'll sometimes define racism as something that only a powerful group can impose on other groups? So you can't have black racists who don't like Asians, or you can't have uh, black racists who dislike Jews, or you can't have Jews that dislike Asians, or you can't have Lebanese that don't like Syrians, whatever it is. So uh, cl clearly that is misleading, but we did just, we went through this ethnic studies controversy. We've talked about it in previous episodes that the State Board of Education of California just voted to adopt an ethnic studies model curriculum. They had 100,000 comments on wow. it, almost, almost all negative. Uh, but anyway, they adopted it. This went through its fourth iteration. Uh, a few things, and I, I think I and the Independent Institute can take some credit for some of this. So I wrote two articles, uh, both for Wall Street Journal, two, three articles, one in the Wall Street Journal, two in the Wall Street Journal, one in the Orange County Register. And so the first one was just as I was uh, retiring from Hoover and coming to Independent Institute, and the other two were since I've been here. And uh, so one of my main criticisms was they tied this all to capitalism. They say that uh, you know, their, their basic idea is that all, everything is designed by whites to oppress blacks and other racial groups, particularly Asians and American Indians. Not all Asians, though. So they've, they've that's what their theory is, all American institutions. No, but they, Koreans are part of the oppressor group. Well, I'm just going to get to that in one yeah. second here. So. That's white adjacent or conditional yes. whites. We'll get to that right. in a second. All right. So anyway, the point is they tied this all to capitalism. So they took that out. 1.1. There's no explicit attacks on capitalism anymore. Now, I wouldn't say it's pro-capitalist. I wouldn't say that it recognizes that capitalism and free political institutions can be an avenue through which people can rise and advance and get their interests uh, attended to and so forth. They don't really have that. But they took out the explicit anti-capitalism. That's a game. Uh, still some stuff about imperialism yeah. and whatever in there, but it's not anything like what it was. They took out all this, they took out all the stuff about 
cop killers being idolized and people who assassinated congressmen being idolized. They took that out. Now, they still have the thing about worshiping the Aztec god who gets human sacrifice. They forgot to take that out, but that's still in there. And uh, as I said, they still have imperialism and oppression and some stuff like that. Uh, They added in something they did not have, which was stuff about achievement. Mm -hmm. So they have now black achievement, black success, Mm -hmm. black accomplishments is in there, which which was one of my complaints is that they had nothing about how people could could succeed in American society. And they have examples of it. Now, it's only for blacks, but of course, that's, you know, the main point where there's suggestion that there's no possibility of success or rising. So they've they've adjusted that. Uh, they, uh, They added some additional groups. So they have their pet groups, which are blacks, Asians, American Indians, and Latinos. So they're still in there. And the reason they're in there is because the leftists think that these are going to be the agents of revolution in the future, mm-hmm. the vanguard of a right. social transformation. But they put in a lot of other groups, and still mainly those four, but they put in Jews and Sikhs and Armenians and on and on, and including Koreans, okay? So, and they also, they added anti-Semitism as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't have, in the original plan, they had no anti-Semitism, but they put in anti-Semitism and they also put in Islamophobia, but they put in anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So uh, now they have this idea that David was kind of getting at, and that's still in there. So this is, if you achieve under this terrible, under critical race theory, and you're under white oppression and everything, and your group is able to succeed, it's because your group was made adjacent white, or that the whites Mm -hmm. have decided that you are a white conditional. So let's say, uh, so that doesn't mean your skin has suddenly changed, but you're like acceptable to the whites and on their sufferance, you're allowed in the ruling group, but you're on a knife edge. At any time, they could throw you back into the abyss. Okay, so you're white adjacent. It's like you're a collaborator. Mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> I mean, it mm-hmm. really is like that. Yeah. So you're collaborating with the oppressor, and the collaborator therefore allows you some rewards. You see? So they have that. I don't. I, obviously, I don't that's think that's pretty good ugly. Thing. That was in the original, and it stuff. still remains. Ugly stuff. It's ugly stuff. And so, so I, I, none of us would have voted for this, but I think. I can take some credit and independent as an institute's helping me uh, for getting rid of some of the very egregious things that, that I have removed. Also, as I understand it, it's not going to be mandated, mandatory for graduation. Well, that's a separate matter. So there's two, there's two things here. This is getting a little into the weeds for our listeners, but I'll keep it brief. So there's a model curriculum. Mm-hmm which is not mandatory. It's just the default kind of thing. And it's what most of the textbooks are going to be written around and the instructional materials that get approved and so forth. So most districts are going to adopt something like that. And then there's the question of whether uh, taking a course in this is going to be required. That's a separate statutory matter. And that's the thing that he vetoed in the past. It's going to come up again Mm -hmm. now that they have a model curriculum. 
I think it will probably pass mm -hmm. given how dominant the Democrats are in the legislature. So uh, it still will not be that you have to take exactly this course. It's just that the districts will have mm -hmm. to make an effort to do an alternative. Now, the super leftist, super critical race theory people, this, we can view this thing as moderate critical mm -hmm. race theory. <laughs> The more extreme ones that were manifested in the original draft, they have formed liberated ethnic studies, and they're trying to get districts to adopt the original mm -hmm. model. Yeah, that makes sense. Well. well, I think they toned it down in part as as they toned it down. They toned the they, language down. Know, Jewish groups and all these different groups were up in right. arms about it. The, and the Jews, the Jew, yeah. organized Jewish groups, have to be given a lot of exactly. credit here. That's right for fighting yes. on behalf of themselves, but yeah. also uh, the rest that's of right. us. So exactly. I think we have to right. be very happy. So I think that's happen. a good reflection of uh, civil society striking back and pushing back yes. on this kind of it. Um, a hundred thousand complaints. Yeah, right. That's a, a lot. lot. Exactly. Right. right. Let, yeah. we, we will get, we guarantee we will keep our friends uh, up to date uh, on the subject and the uh, right. here in California, which tends to set the pace for the nation. What, one tiny thing, if I could say real quick, Graham, is, and I think this also is a, a lead in to the recall effort for Newsom mm -hmm, because he shut the, the schools down and he has his, his children in private schools and all the rest of it. And people are furious about it, and their their anger continues to grow and spread. And so, uh, assuming the recall is is adopted, you know, I think uh, Newsom's going to have a tough time again, where civil society strikes back uh, and pushes the elites aside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. By the way, the elites don't even realize. You know, they really never acknowledged that they had these 100,000 complaints. <laughs> and during the state school board meeting, they spent half an hour congratulating yeah. each other and kumbayaing oh, and yeah. saying, oh, aren't we wonderful? And aren't all the people wonderful? <laughs> Whatever. The most weird thing in saying, gee, we kind of goofed here. And luckily, we were able to use various paths to try to get us to a better. No, it was all. Oh, I'm so glad to be here in the same meeting with my colleagues. Oh, grief, so on yeah. and on and on. Anyway, enough of that. They don't. They don't. They are not self-conscious of what a bad situation right. they're in. Uh, David, before we come to a close here, um, I wonder if you want to uh, share with some of our friends um, upcoming books or recently published books from Independent Institute. We have some great stuff that we're publishing. Maybe our friends would like a quick uh, reminder about those books before we we sign off. I think you had some in mind. Well, right behind me over here, there's a book called New Way to Care by our senior fellow, John Goodman. And it's basically on um, how to uh, empower people through market-based private accounts to uh, get them beyond the suffocating, failing, insolvent entitlement state. Uh, and in the process, uh, about two-thirds of federal spending is entitlements. It would end that. It would end the debt problem. Anyway, that's one book. Uh, it deals with the whole area of health care and so on. Uh, second is the one here called Hot Talk Cold Science. Uh, it's a third expanded revised edition of a book we originally did back in 1997. And 
It is about twice the length of the previous edition. It is the most comprehensive, up-to-date book on the whole issue of climate change and the science and the, the uh, point that climate alarmism is not based on the science. And the third book is right down here called Really Good Schools by another one of our senior fellows, James Tooley, who's actually vice chancellor of Buckingham University in England. Could you pick that up and hold it? Because I think it's the least able to be focused on by the sure. camera. Yeah. Great so, cover, James Tooley. So the book is, uh, James is, is probably the leading authority on school systems in developing countries. And after decades of work, um, he uh, is the leading authority on low-cost private schools for the poor in Kenya and India and Central America and China and many other places. Could I say something about this? Because it has a fascinating origin. So we used to say in England that some clerics would get a job in the rural area and it was called a living. So they got the income from that. But they never went. <laughs> they lived in London and enjoyed the highlight. Well, in India, same thing happens. People get appointments as teachers in rural schools, mm -hmm. and they stay in big cities, and they never come and teach. So and they never. These are in government mm -hmm. schools. So the the poor people band together and have these low cost private schools that truly essentially pioneer the academic study, uh, serious scholarly study of these schools. And he builds on the experience of these parents in India and other third world countries to how we could tackle the problems we have in education in the United States. David, excuse me for interrupting you, but I think the, the background is kind of a fascinating aspect because in a way, it's not as serious, but some of our teachers are also time servers. They don't, you know, we've seen this during the pandemic. That's right. Exactly. They're like, don't want to teach, right? Pay us, but we don't want to teach, or we don't want to teach full time, or we, whatever. So, David, a final comment on Dr. Tooley's book before we go? Well, what, what James has done, he's, he's taken all this information from around the world and has brought it into a single book about how to create low-cost private schools for the poor and everyone else in America and in Europe, in the developed world, essentially. And so this is an incredibly powerful book. It's extremely timely. Uh, as I mentioned, parents are fed up with the schools being closed. They had believed the teachers' unions were protecting them in the schools. Exactly. And so they, they know that's not true now. So exactly. this book is, uh, we think, going to be a very important book to move the conversation in a very constructive way uh, for everyone on this whole issue of K-12 through education. As being treated, taken seriously, Education right. Next, which is an extremely important journal that I was one of the founding advisory editors of long ago, no longer connected to them, but I can tell you it's a very serious publication and they've reviewed it, and so we expect some attention for it, and we hope that people take it to heart. Well, Paul Peterson just interviewed uh, James on the Ednex podcast last week. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Has that been posted yet? Not yet. There are solutions. Um, we are not hostage to rule by experts, uh, and the fate of individual liberty is not uh, over. 
uh, we, we are looking forward and we invite all of our friends who join us for these conversations to uh, buy these books, consider them. You can go to our website, independent.org, for a plethora of resources on these and other matters. And we also invite you to join us in two weeks for another uh, episode of Independent Outlook. Thank you to David. Thank you. And to Bill Evers. Thank you. And join us again, friends, in a couple of weeks. Goodbye from the Independent Institute. Take care.